You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Okay, we're recording now. It's Glenn Lowry, bloggingheads.tv, The Glenn Show. The reason I'm grimacing, audience, is because uh, Ian Rowe, my guest here, the estimable uh, leader <laughs> in the uh, charter school movement in New York City, uh, he's the chief executive officer of Public Prep Charter School Network in the Bronx, and I have already been talking for 20 or 30 minutes, and I have forgotten to hit the record button. Oh, my God. So this is Glenn Lowry, The Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. I'm a professor at Brown University. You all know that. Watson Institute for Public and International Affairs sponsors The Glenn Show. God love them. Uh, I'm with Ian uh, Rowe, who's, uh, as I've said, an educator, uh, a leader. Uh, and uh, uh, he's in the charter school movement in New York City. And we're going to have to start our conversation over again. Welcome, Ian. It's all good. It's, 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 hopefully it'll be as good the second time around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then, at least we've got a running start. Uh, we're talking about education in New York City. You are uh, the head of a charter school network. Charter schools are extremely controversial. Can you uh, justify why it is that you would be taking students and resources out of the hands of uh, the traditional public schools in uh, the city of New York uh, in order to uh, carry on your activities. And can you tell me why it is that so many people are so angry uh, about uh, your movement and are trying to, to stifle you every way they can? Yeah, well, you know, um, so so first of all, thank you for having me on. This is great. Um, as you mentioned, I am the uh, CEO of Public Prep. And so I've run this uh, network uh, since uh, for, since 2010, so almost 10 years now, and we are remain one of the country's only networks exclusively focused on single sex uh, public charter schools. So pre K through eighth grade, we have all boys and all girls schools um, across our network. We've got more than 2,000 uh, kids across five campuses in the heart of the South Bronx, and. The Lower East Side of Manhattan. And, you know, at the end of the day, we exist to provide a choice and an option for families who live in communities that, unfortunately, the schools that have been educating their kids haven't been doing the job. And I say that as someone who proudly uh, is a product of the New York City public education system myself. You know, my parents emigrated from Jamaica, you know, West Indies. They came to Brooklyn. We lived on in Flatbush, and my parents came, you know, for me and my brother to live the American dream. And, you know, one of the big choices my parents made was where to send us to school, what public schools to send, you know, for us to attend. And so we were in Brooklyn and Queens. Um, and then I went to Brooklyn Tech High School, so one of the specialized high schools. It's such such controversy now. Yeah. Um, and so I'm a big believer in the traditional public school system. And, you know, but what I've realized over the course of my career, you know, I've, I've had some amazing jobs. You know, I was at Teach for America in the early days, uh, the White House, uh, MTV, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I've raised tons of money. When we were at the Gates Foundation, you know, um, we, we spent about $470 million in one year um, trying to invest to increase the number of low-income kids that were finishing college. But really what we were giving money to were to community colleges and institutions of higher education to better remediate kids that were coming in to college, not academically prepared, not uh, financially prepared, not culturally prepared. 
And so back in 2010, I wanted to lead a network that would, A, start much earlier. Like, how about actually starting at kindergarten and not trying to solve problems when kids are 16, 17, 18 years old? Um, and to be able to have some flexibility in terms of curriculum, the ability to hire and fire my own teachers. And so once you go down that road, you've got to, you know, you look at the charter school movement. So for the last 10 years, I've been running um, public charter schools. And, and you know, you, you're right in that they're controversial to some. But when it comes to families, it's not controversial at all. I mean, right now, at this very moment, you know, it's Jan- last day of January 2020, we have close to 4,000 families on our wait list for our schools in the Bronx. There's nothing controversial about that. They just desperately want their child to have a shot at the American dream. You said you've got 2,000 students? So, so, right. So in our, in our network now, across our five campuses, we have a little bit more than 2,000 students enrolled. And you've got 4,000 on the wait list. Two on a wait list for every seat uh, in, this, in the school network that you're running. Yeah, I mean, look, Yeah, I, I wish we could open. You know, the good news is we're about to open our next campus, our next all-girls school in the Bronx this coming uh, September. So we're very excited about that. We're opening Girls Prep Bronx, too. But, you know, it, it, it's still a drop in the bucket when you look at the level of demand. I mean, the one of the most heartbreaking things that we do, uh, well, one of the most joyful things that we do when we run our random lottery is that we call parents and say, hey, you've got the golden ticket and there's screams of joy. And, you know, these people, these families are just so desperate. But, you know, we also call nearly 4,000 families and say, well, the best we can do is put your child on an excruciatingly long wait list with very little hopes of getting into our school. And, you know, that's a crime. So, but, you know, you're right. There, there are definitely people who oppose charter schools on the premise that somehow we're stealing resources or that we cherry pick kids. Um, But first and foremost, a charter school is a public school. The charter school is actually charter is actually a secondary adjective. The first and most important adjective is public in front of school. So we're not stealing resources from ourselves. And in New York city, just, you know, just as a point of fact, the, uh, the amount that's allocated to, uh, traditional uh, charter to charter schools per pupil is about four to five thousand dollars less than what is spent on a traditional district student, and that is what about fifteen thousand a year, something like that. So in New York City, the per pupil um, is extraordinarily high relative to the rest of the country, but it's so charters receive about seventeen thousand uh, dollars per student, but the traditional district school. I mean, there was a report that came out. Uh, something like 28, but I think in New York City, the core is about twenty one, twenty two thousand dollars It's a lot of money. Wow, it is a lot of money. Um, what are you doing that they're not doing in the uh, traditional public schools? You mentioned hiring and firing teachers. Something tells me that that might be a sticking point for the union. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what's interesting, so, so there, there's no question that the structural um, setup for charters does allow us to do uh, certain things that um, traditional district schools, their hands are tied. So you've just named one of them. I mean, imagine if you ran an organization um, where your number one asset, which is your people, you didn't really have control over. 
And so that is something um, very important. So we get to hire our own principals and our own teachers and to set their compensation levels and to set their benefits packages. Uh, I got to call you back. I'm on a recording <laughs> session right now. Okay. All right. I love it. That, that was my lovely cool. wife. <laughs> We're buying a new house and we got all kinds of workers in there doing all kinds of things. Hey man. So she needs to check Happy in with Happy wife. Me. Happy life. That's true. And so far so good. Anyway, so go far, ahead. You were there you saying, go. There you go. About, Monday, uh, was, Monday was my 13th, 13th, 13th wedding anniversary. So I'm oh, on. All right. Um, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, the, you know, what it is that you're able to do yeah, because you're free right. from the traditional system. Yeah, so so the ability to select our own staff and our personnel, the ability to um, do the kinds of professional development that we think is targeted and impactful, um, compensation, our benefits packages. So we, you know, we we treat our employees like the jewels that they are. Um, and so we do have more freedom there. You know, we have the ability to shape our curriculum um, uh, in, in, in ways that we can expose our kids. Uh, like, for example, you know, our uh, kindergarten, we have science five days a week, 45 minutes per day, five days a week. And unfortunately, most, yeah, traditionally, most district schools have really limited the amount of science and social studies that occur, you know, and, in, 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 and, you know, we just think, you know, for example, science, like science is a, is a secret weapon. You know, it's, 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 yeah. it's a kind of thing where you can engage young people, you know, in tactile ways and experiments that can really foster a love of learning, which then bleeds over into other areas. So that's something we can just choose to do. Um, Am I right in thinking that your teachers have less security than they would have, uh, in a uh, traditional public school uh, because they're susceptible to evaluation and potentially to dismissal and their compensation is dependent upon uh, somebody's measure of their performance, which uh, gives them less rights or, or less right. security than they would have if they were employed uh, outside of the charter sector. Is that one of the reasons why the unions would fight to keep you guys? Well, uh, as I, I, I will definitely, I will definitely say, yeah. Poor performing teachers are more at risk in our network. <laughs> You're happy to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, imagine if you were running an organization and you there were all sorts of blockades about your ability to either reward your best personnel or to penalize or, or do whatever's necessary with your not-so-well And how do you ascertain whether or not one of your employees is doing a good job in, in the classroom or not? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of, you know, there are a number of ways. I mean, people, you know, go directly to things like, you know, standardized test scores. That is one element, but there are, there are a lot of elements that, um, we look at that uh, make up a high quality teacher. So just for example, the level of intellectual preparation that a teacher does in terms of preparing lesson plans, working with their colleagues, developing appropriate assessments, like, so much of the work of high quality teachers is actually done well before they're actually teaching in the classroom. And so we want to see signs of the ability to think about what are the questions that our kids are likely going to ask, or what are the wrong answers that are likely going to develop that we got to make sure we have the ability to answer. How are we going to leverage the fact that we might have some kids in the classroom that are equipped 
to answer a question? How do we actually use them to become the teachers of their peers, to build this sort of camaraderie within the classroom where it's not just about the teacher, you know, giving the answer, but you actually create a dynamic, a community within the classroom where all the kids are learning from each other and you've sort of rigged the deck because you've identified those kids who are already doing well. So those are just, you know, a few examples of the kinds of things that aren't often spoke about in terms of how do you really evaluate high quality teachers and instruction? Um, You know, again, people look at test scores. So, so, you know, we have a whole process and we, you know, there's a series of, of, um, of, um, you know, professional sort of evaluations over the course of the year where teachers are given feedback. We've got structures around coaching that we think are, are, you know, people don't get better working in a vacuum, you know, Teaching is one of the few professions where most of your work is actually done in isolation of any of your other professionals. If you go to many schools, you know, once the teacher closes that door, no one has any idea what's happening until it's too late when you see the kids aren't reading or they're not doing math or they're, they don't have a love of learning. Do you and monitor so- your teachers uh, during their uh, classes and stuff? Yeah, I mean, monitor is is has I think has some negative overtones. Yeah. but provide regular coaching, feedback. You know, we 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 sometimes have team teaching. We have master teachers. So yeah. there are a lot of other opportunities. We think that our teachers get to do some self reflection, also get feedback from their principals, other master teachers. You know, that, so when you ask in, what's different? That aspect actually could be done within a traditional system. Because a lot of this starts with what are the high expectations that you place at the outset? So, for example, when a parent um, enters our lottery and we make that call that you're in, you know, they, you know they, they come to our school, they do an orientation, but then one of the first things we do, we do a home visit. Every single child in our network gets a home visit where that child's teacher and either the principal or another uh, school leadership team member goes to the home, sits with the caregiver and the child to talk about how are we going to become partners to put your scholar on a path to college completion, even if they're four years old and they're starting in our pre-K. Because the whole idea is say, here are the expectations. You know, we, we think, you know, we, we're operating on the assumption that your kid's going to college, right? So it's whether you're in four-year-old or five-year-olds, but here's what we got to do. We have to partner up together. Here's the responsibility of the teacher. Here's the responsibility of the principal. Here's the responsibility you caregiver. You know, how many minutes per night are you going to be reading with your child? What's the reading log that you're going to fill out? How many events are you going to attend every single year at our school? And then, by the way, here, young scholar, here's what you have to do. And we all operate around our four core values of responsibility, merit, scholarship, and either brotherhood or sisterhood, depending on if you're in the all-boys or all-girls schools. Those are the core values for which everything centers around. Responsibility, merit, scholarship, and brotherhood or sisterhood. What do you mean by merit? Merit? The harder I work, the more I achieve, right? Merit is your effort that you're putting in and what you earn in response. It's very important because, you know, our kids are surrounded with all sorts of messages 
about the system is rigged against them. There's structural this, there's structural that. By and by and by the way, there is some of that structural this and structural that, but we never want it to get into your head that somehow your own merit, your own efforts can empower you to overcome those things. That's where responsibility comes in. You know, it's your responsibility. You are the captain of your own destiny. These are the kinds of, you know, sort of character-based strengths, having a future orientation, having, you know, thinking about your life. It's why we start New York State 529 college savings accounts for every single one of our kids and then match every year. So, you know, it could be $100 that we're putting into an account. And it's not that these amounts are so... Well, wait a minute. I want people to understand the school is inviting the parents to save, even though the kid is five years old, for the kid to go to college and is matching yes. the money that the parent puts into the tax-deferred account. To- yes. Come on, man. I never heard of that. That's pretty cool. You know, we like to be innovative. Lucky kid to get off that waiting list. But but then let me just ask you, because some of the critics of charter schools are fond of saying that you cherry pick the students. The reason that you're able to report the results that you're able to report is that you can avoid the behaviorally, uh, uh, you know, troublesome yep. kids and, yep. uh, you know, the kids that might have special needs and whatnot. And uh, you can you can kind of uh, create this little enclave over there of all of these uh, privileged and, uh, and advantaged kids and whatnot. What about that? Yeah, you know, that that's one of those tropes that's out there. Look, as I say, you know, we have, you know, 4,000 on the wait list. And so, you know, there's no cherry picking because when we get, you know, uh, kids enter the random lottery, it is truly a random lottery. You know, the only preferences are if you're a sibling, right? So if you have a, you know, if you have a, a girl child in our old girls school and you have a, a younger boy sibling, that boy can get into our boys school. If you uh, live in the geography, so, you know, if you live in the heart of the South Bronx in District 7 or District 8, and that's where, you know, several of our campuses are located, you will have geographic preference. Finally, there's a proxy for free and reduced price lunch. So if you live in a housing project, then you are more likely to live to be accepted into our school. But we don't screen. We don't we know nothing about your academics. We know nothing about your special education status. We know nothing about your English language learner status, right? Those are not criteria at all. We are a public school. And that so is really, really students important. Are, are English as a second language students? What's that? Many of the kids that you are yeah. instructing come in without English as their first language. Oh, absolutely. We have many recent, um, um, you know, Immigrants, we have children of undocumented uh, folk who are, you know, here for the first time, and we welcome everyone. And, and, and something else that I'm really proud of at Public Prep is that if you do go to some other schools, you know, they may accept students, but as you go up the grades, you know, grade two, three, four, five, you might see this sort of incredible shrinking population of kids because kids may leave for any reason, but then they don't accept transfer students. Uh-huh. We accept transfer students, right? So if in fifth grade there's a 10-year-old who, you know, whose parent feels they've gotten a, you know, crappy education elsewhere, they should have the opportunity to enter our school. I'm not going to penalize a 10-year-old kid because they, you know, they uh, drew a short straw and they didn't have a good education. What it means 
though, is that we as a network have to be equipped with the kind of special education resources, behavioral supports that allows any child to be successful. And, and for me, you know, the essence of, of what I do as a charter leader is I run public schools that are providing an opportunity for kids and families who haven't had the opportunity for a great education to have that. And, you know, so there are going to be people that criticize and accuse us of things, but, you know, what do you do? What do you do when a kid acts out, um, curses the teacher, uh, won't get off their mobile phone. I suppose they're not supposed to. Yeah, they, 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 they don't have I remember it's, it's pre-K through eight, but you know, we live in the modern world. What, what do you do with, what do you do with, with bad kids? Well, you know, we, we don't like to use any term like of bad kids. Like, sure, yeah, I, I, that's why I put it in uh, scare right. quotes. No, no, look, every, every kid, you know, has their own individual context. And there's, we certainly have kids who have behavioral issues that are caused by a range of things. Like it could be caused by um, mental health issues. It could be caused by physical issues. It could be yeah. caused by just being in a very difficult home environment. Yes. Um, and frankly, we overinvest in special education, social workers, you know, counselors, um, you know, we do, um, you know, we are clear on disciplinary standards, right? So it's not that we're allowing kids to run amok, but you know, there is a certain humanity, um, that we think has to exist. And a lot of this, again, starts with the parental communication. The reason why you don't, you don't suspend or expel. We have very low numbers of suspensions and, and expelling. I mean, it has happened certainly in our career, but that, you know, we rarely think that that's the, um, the right intervention because generally if we suspend a kid, that means they are going back into a system that probably the parent was hoping to escape from in the first place. Look, I'm not saying we never did, have never done it. And we have come to the conclusion in a few instances that that, was the answer of last resort, but we try to do everything in our, our power to keep our kids. And you know what's interesting is that oftentimes when parents and kids see the level of investment that we are making uh, in a kid to keep them on track, you know, to be on a path to college completion and to help you put money in your 529 account and take you onto these college trips and all the things that we do, we actually start to see that parents like, wow, no one has ever believed in my child in this way. Maybe I can step up a little bit, bit more because you're actually demonstrating that you believe in my child. And so it's just an interesting thing that, that I think oftentimes we give up on kids in certain communities because they have become identified as the bad kid. And so the parents and the kid themselves feel like uh, you're going to give up on me anyway. So why even bother to change my behavior? And so in that, we have to, we have to like, no, 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 we're not, that is easy. It is easy to cop out. No, 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 we're not going to let you do that. We believe in you. We believe in you. What role does the single sex uh, dynamic play in your pedagogic philosophy? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. When, when Girls Prep was founded in 2005, as the first all-girls public charter school in New York City, it actually wasn't founded on the idea that a single-sex education is inherently better than co-ed. It was actually founded on the idea of choice, 
because in 2005, if you wanted your daughter to have a great all-girls elementary and middle school education, you could yeah, go to Spence, Brearley, yeah. you know, Chapin, Knight, wonderful schools. If they would have you. Well, there is that. And, <laughs> and if you had about thirty to $40,000 of disposable income, so, which many of our families do not have. And so we said, look. Um, we believe every parent should have the power to choose a great tuition-free, single-sex um, education if that's what they want for their child. So, but there's nothing so, behind the single-sex idea. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the first thing is it, it is about choice. Now that said, we love our single-sex environments. Like you know, so for example, in our science, as we we're talking about science, five days a week, you know, forty-five um, minutes a day, starting in kindergarten. You know, in our all-girls school, the top, you know, uh, scientist is a girl. You know, in our math class, the top math students are a girl. Like, there's no, there's no preset positions that are reserved for the girls or the boys in terms of superiority. So when we have all of our STEM-focused events, we just had an event uh, a little while ago where our sixth-grade girls built a computer in partnership with Cornell Tech. Right. Just I mean, just think about that. You know, there, there, so there's no like perception of God. I, I really can't do that. You know, we have a partnership with a with a organization called BioBus, which is these, this incredible mobile state of the art science lab. And it's run by almost exclusively female scientists. And so when those female scientists come talk to our girls, it's like it's mind blowing. So there are things that we're able to do in a single-sex environment that just basically dispel rumors, both girls and boys, by the way. You know, even our boys, when, you know, the National Dance Institute comes in and they're teaching ballet, you know, to our first-grade boys, that's also breaking stereotypes of, you know, the, or gender stereotypes. So a single-sex environment isn't for everyone. We think our low-income family should have a choice, but if you believe in it, gosh, there's so many great things that we can do. Um, you know, it just removes some of the drama. And by the way, it also removes some of the biases that even some of the adults might have. You know, oftentimes it's the adults who think that girls may not be able to do math at a high level. And so we just we just try to eradicate all that kind of thinking. And, and you know, so far so good. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. There still aren't that many single-sex options. Um, so, you know, we remain, you know, in the Bronx, you know, we're, we're the only all boys elementary and middle public school, uh, in the Bronx. And see, I you know, thought you were going to say something about the social dynamic of competing for the attention of the opposite sex amongst these pre-adolescents and things like that. You know, uh, look, we're in the midst of designing our high school and the high school probably will be single sex in grades nine and 10 and, and co-ed grades 11 and 12. That it probably will be more of an issue at the high school level. Yeah. You know, elementary, middle, it, it's it's not that. Uh, you know, it, we don't think that that's necessarily the, um, you know, and maybe because we've been in environments that are single sex, I, I don't even know how the issues are in terms of competing for attention. But it's just, it's obviously something we just don't have to deal with. I remember reading a book a few years ago uh, by Ava Moskowitz, Yes. Uh, the education of Ava Moskowitz and her description of the political climate in New York City and in New York State toward charter schools was chilling. Uh, it gave me the impression that there's just a lot of opposition and hostility uh, to the charter school movement 
Uh, without asking you to review her book, I'm sure you're familiar with it, I wonder what your impression is about uh, the the current environment and the prospects going forward, uh, because you've got enemies, man. <laughs> we have enemies, but we have friends, right? So, uh-huh. um, so you know, New York is uh, New York is probably the most hospitable environment to public charter schools in the entire country. Wow! And simultaneously, we face an existential threat. So think about those two things being true at the same time. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, you know, when Mike Bloomberg became mayor of New York City, the, the, the New York education system had been in free fall for generations. And as a result, you know, part of it, there was some flight out of New York City public schools. So he faced a situation where he had a, a system that was in decline. He had buildings that were often empty. Um, or partially empty, and there was this advent of this thing called public charter schools. And he said, you know what? Why don't I allow the innovation, these innovative charter schools, to be able to um, open up in uh, public schools that had excess space? And it was that innovation that allowed the charter sector is now more than 200 schools in New York City serving, I think, about 150,000 students. And so that was that was incredible in terms of our growth, but for the traditional system, that started to build our enemies because within the same building, you may have a charter school that you know where the kids are in uniforms and they're performing well, and in that same building with the kids from the same socioeconomic and racial backgrounds, the charters are doing far better. And so this became a, a point of contention, and there's definitely stress. And it, and uh, and so when Mayor De Blasio uh, became mayor, who initially was certainly no fan of charter schools and still has his issues with our sector, you know, he was determined to shut us down or, or slow down the growth. And so he was going to uh, reverse Mayor Bloomberg's policy, and since instead of providing free space to public charter schools, he said, you know what, I'm going to start charging you rent. I'm going to, I'm going to force you to take potentially 30 to 40% of the money that you receive from the state and actually pay it back to the school system in rent. And if you have to, you know, suffer, your kids have to suffer academically because you're now able to offer less things, then so be it. This is space that would have otherwise been going unused. That is absolutely right. So I think we need to call that a tax, not a rent. <laughs> yes. I, I think what's happening here is he's saying, you want to exist, you're going to have to pay the king. You got to pay the king. And so, you know, when you just said we have enemies, we have friends. And you, and you know what we do? We also have parents. And so this was October of 2013. Mayor de Blasio was campaigning. This was his campaign platform. And, you know, we said to parents, look, this is, you know, this is your fight too. You're, you got to fight for your, your kid's education. And so we were able to mobilize 17,000 families to march across the Brooklyn Bridge to say to Mayor de Blasio, look, we might vote for you because this is a democratic city, but please, please don't take away the one institution that's, that's actually working for our kids. Please don't force charter schools essentially to have to close or to slow down. So we had 17,000 families 
um, walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. This was October 2013. Mayor de Blasio then won the election in November 2013. So come 2014, when he took office, he said, I campaigned on it. I'm going to charge these schools rent. So he was not backing down. And this was a turning point in the moment, in the moment of the, the public charter sector. We had to go to Albany to at, beg the state legislature and the governor. So there was one day, I forget, maybe it was February 7th in Albany, 2014, bone chilling cold, 11 degrees. We had about 11,000 family members who took buses, cars. We all came up to Albany outside in front of the state capitol, bitter cold, pleading with the state legislature to stop the mayor from doing what he was about to do. Governor Cuomo was supposed to go to a campaign event that de Blasio was holding around pre-K inside in a warm you know, building with about a few hundred union paid members. And the governor said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go to that event. I want to be with the people outside. And here we have 11,000 primarily black and brown fit grandmothers, aunts, parents with their kids, frigid cold. And the governor comes out, he and and it, it was like this epiphany moment and the and the, the governor says, "You are not alone." I am with you. And that moment is honestly one of the most energizing moments of my life. I felt like I was in the civil rights movement or what it must have felt like to be in the civil rights movement in the 60s because it was a moment where all those individual family members who probably had never really understood the power that they actually have to actually see that the forces of power actually can bend to their will if they mobilize and organize around something as simple as their desperate belief that their kid deserves. So this is Andrew Cuomo, the governor of the state, a Democrat, and uh, uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, a Democrat, yep. Yep. in what sounds to me like mortal combat, I mean, politically <laughs> speaking, because yes. if you call a meeting and the governor is supposed to show up at it, and he walks out of your meeting and goes over to these other people whom you've been opposing. Yes. This is, this is a fight to the death, politically speaking. No, you know, this, this is the irony of the whole thing. The Republican Party is generally the party that supports school choice, charters, all that. It's within the Democrat Party that you've got this ideological divide of, you know, there was actually a group of, of high uh, prominent Democrats that created an entity called Democrats for Education Reform, where they try to support Democratic candidates to say, look, look, if the unions tell you as an elected official that they're going to stop um, supporting you financially if you support charter schools, we've got your back. I mean, literally, right now, today, in, in New York City, for all the elected officials, the working family parties and others – have said, and Mike Mulgrew, the union member, has said, we are going to not only not support you, we're going to actively oppose you if you support charter schools or take money from people who are known to support charter schools. This is the kind of political pressure that's being imposed on Democrats 
And by the way, these are Democrats who live in the South Bronx, who represent kids in Brownsville, right, who have in their communities maybe anywhere from five to 20 charter schools in their district. They're hearing from their constituents every day, thank God I finally got a choice. And now the powers that be are trying to force those Democrat elected officials to change their position. And so, you know, it is a tough environment in New York. Well, what they're going to say, isn't it, is that when you're talking about mortal threat, we're the ones that is the traditional public schools who confront the mortal threat. Uh, You guys are going to nickel and dime us and chip away and chip away and chip away. And the next thing you know, they're going to be there's not going to be any more traditional public education left. Can I envision a world where every school is a quote unquote charter school? And, uh, you know, what about the, the rights of the employees who are the teachers who are being represented by the union, whose uh, prerogatives are undermined by the success of your movement? Uh, we, we're fighting for pay. We're fighting for job security. We're fighting for control over, you know, whatever. <laughs> yes. And you're threatening that. Yeah. Well, you know, I look, I, at the end of the day, we all exist, traditional district schools, public charter schools. We exist to serve children. We exist to serve families who want a good education for their kids, who should have the same kind of choice that my parents did when they came from Jamaica, came to the United States, came to Brooklyn, came to Queens, and they were able to choose a good school for their kids. I, Ian Rowe, am not committed to the destruction of the traditional district school system. I'm a product of it. I want traditional district schools to thrive because, by the way, while charter schools maybe serve 150,000 kids, there are, you know, more than 900,000 in the traditional system. Yeah. So the charter schools, you know, I, we try to serve as a model for maybe there are things that we're doing in our system that other district schools can do. We're not a threat. Hopefully we're a laboratory, a model a best practice. And by the way, that relationship can go both ways. There are some great traditional district schools where we can learn from. I never want to get to the point where it's like, well, charter schools, we have all the answers. And so I think it's unfortunate when people set up these false red herring arguments that charters are committed to the destruction of the sector. It's just not true. And, you know, it's it's folks who, in my view, are trying to confuse the situation where we're just trying to provide a great option for kids. You guys, do you have a longer school day, a longer school year? Yes, all of those things. You do. We have, uniform, we have uniforms. We've got, you know, we have Saturday Academy. You know, again, oh. all of this goes back to... And teachers are expected to show up on Saturday and to put in the go. longer hours and uh, yeah, the work you know, the and year? Yeah, and sometimes it's additional compensation, right? I mean... What, how does compensation for your teachers uh, match up with compensation for public school teachers in the uh, district schools? So, you know, we try to be very competitive, particularly with the New York City Department of Education system. I, I will say that, you know, in the New York City DOE, there are some step levels that once you get to a certain number of years of teacher experience, yeah, you, they, you, it's, a, it's a massive jump. There's no relation <laughs> to that level of pay to their, you know, the student, the outcomes of students um, who are in these teachers' classes. Can your teachers get tenure after a certain no. number of years of service? No, no tenure. No, no, no. No. I, no, I mean, what sector, what competitive sector in the world um, has the concept of, you know, you have a guaranteed job for life? It just doesn't exist, right? And 
Well, the Did job you? that I have has that bit. But just, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps it shouldn't exist. <laughs> you know, it's just imagine if you're running an organization and you don't have the ability to influence yeah. the number one asset, and that's your people. Um, so that, that makes it tougher. So what about curriculum? Uh, are there ways in which what you're doing um, uh, at uh, public prep differs sharply in how you approach the, you know, the intellectual task of what do we teach and how do we teach it differs sharply from what is being done in traditional public schools? Well, we think so because, you know, curriculum is just one part of the teaching puzzle, right? There's, there's, there's curriculum and instruction, right? The, the two things go together. And so we do have more flexibility to, you know, imbue our curriculum with um, different kind of content that, that actually might be more inclusive. I mean, that's a very popular topic this, you know, now, of, you know, in- expanding the canon. So we have more examples of, of, of racial diversity, gender diversity, ideological diversity, um, because these things are important. And so, you know, so we do have a little bit more flexibility on curriculum. But, you know, frankly, I, I do think a lot of it comes back to the instruction because you could have the best curriculum in the world. And curriculum is important, having content-rich curriculum where, especially in the early grades, there's a body of knowledge that we, we need our kids to have. So at the end of second grade, this is what we want our kids to know, not just that they can, you know, find the main idea in some, you know, content that's just uninteresting and vapid, but that they can find the main idea, but also understand, you know, the history of the formation of the Brooklyn Bridge and what it meant to the community at that time. You know, like there, there's substantive content for which we're learning. And I think that's one of the areas that many charter schools have made an advancement over um, traditional district schools. Um, you know, this idea of content-rich curriculum. So even though the common core as a force has faced all sorts of opposition, I think one of the great legacies of the common core. Now in New York, we're calling it something else, but that there's just been a greater recognition that our kids need substantive content that they're learning about, especially in the, in the, in the early grades. Um, this is a lot of the work of Edie Hirsch, um, who was famous for something called core knowledge, but you know, there's got to be substantive content. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that uh, it's not that district schools couldn't have this focus as well. I mean, there are district schools right now that are choosing to adopt something called the 1619 project into yeah. the core curriculum. So it's not that district schools are powerless to have effective curriculum. It just seems that there isn't this attention that is really squarely focused on what's the body of knowledge that we want kids to have. Well, uh, let me ask you about the 1619 Project, because it's in the news a lot. This is the New York Times Magazine initiative. Uh, They put out a special issue of the magazine a while ago, commissioned essays from a number of prominent uh, writers uh, to address the question of the role of uh, slavery, 1619, the year the slaves first landed in Virginia, African enslaved persons. Uh, They want to recenter the narrative about American history around the fact of African slavery uh, this in preference to the typical story we tell about our country's origins. You mean like the Declaration of Independence? And- yeah, 1776 is the center <laughs> focus, Declaration of Independence, whatnot. The New York Times has a different idea. Nicole Hannah-Jones, a lead essay, other essays. 
and I gather that you you're not altogether on board uh, with that uh, since the um, reach of the initiative is getting into uh, uh, primary and secondary education, is it not, in places around the country? Yeah, I mean, Buffalo, Chicago school system have all just decided not only to make this optional content, but required content for several kids. I mean, for the, you know, high school and middle school. And, you know, so, you know, I think I try to understand, again, try to find common ground. You know, you know, there is an interest in having kids and adults have a better understanding of what the legacy of slavery has been in the United States, how it is or is not connected to modern day issues. But when the whole groups of historians who have no other agenda but to correct what they see as an inaccurate record has been dictated in the 1619 Project, when whole groups of historians come on and say, look, we understand the objectives, but you've got some things that are categorically wrong. You know, why was the revolution fought to preserve, you know, in order to preserve slavery? It, it, like, it's just it's these messages. And so when it was just a magazine article or a series of articles, yeah, that's, that's one thing. But the New York Times has now partnered with the Pulitzer Center to create lesson plans and curricula where thousands and thousands of teachers are now going to be getting curriculum in their hands where the number one thing these kids are going to be taught, the very first lesson actually kicks everything off. America was founded as a slaveocracy, not a democracy. So in like the Buffalo school system, which has one of the lowest performing reading and math rates in all of New York state and probably, probably around the country, the thing that's going to inspire higher levels of literacy or reading or math or a love of learning is learning that their country was poisoned from the very beginning on race and that you as a child of color are essentially doomed because unless there's something like reparations, which is what Nicole Hannah-Jones's stated goal is of the whole purpose of the 1619 Project, unless your oppressor decides to you know, relieve themselves of their evil, then this is the system that you're stuck in. I can't think of anything that's worse for the kids that we serve. Think about how disempowering that is. Well, hold on a minute. Um, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here at some level of people who follow the Glenn Show know that. Uh, I've criticized the 1619 Project here in conversation with John McWhorter and uh, am uh, very favorably disposed to the position that you just took. But somebody's going to say, look, the country was founded in slavery and in the extermination of the Native Americans and in the appropriation of lands and then the greedy industrialists and robber barons and labor unions had a hard time getting off the ground. Uh, women didn't have the right to vote until whatever the wealthy still, there's a plutocratic element. In it. You know, we don't have a true democracy. We've got this Republic with an electoral college and a blah, blah. They're, and they're, you know, they're going to say those things are true, but the narrative that we lay over on top of those facts is up for grabs. It's contested. The, the narrative that many want to lay is a narrative that indicts the uh, indicts the American project in a much more fundamental way, uh, and that calls for radical reform, like reparations. The narrative I gather that you would prefer is a rather less uh, less uh, uh, challenging and, and less critical 
of the status quo. But uh, which is the right narrative is a political uh, statement, not a not a question of truth or higher uh, academic standard. And you've got a political stand, evidently, embedded in your rejection of the 1619 Project, which I'd appreciate it if you would make explicit and then defend. Well, I run schools, right? So if I have a 10-year-old in my, you know, classroom or, you know, the teachers who have our 10-year-olds in the classroom, you know, a a 10-year-old can't solve the legacy of slavery. They can't single-handedly solve housing discrimination, right? There is history and then there is the future. And so the question is, we have to, in this country, recognize that this country has a very checkered history, certainly, for, for whole groups of people, Irish, not just based on race, all sorts of people faced enormous challenges, still face enormous challenges. Look at the anti, look at the uh, Jewish community now that's facing a whole host of anti-Semitic, um, yeah. anti, um, you know, hostile acts. And so our country has this one, the story of resilience and growth in the face of odds. People of all faiths, all colors coming together to advance America towards this more perfect union. And so the question is, what aspect of the history do you decide to, decide to focus on, especially for a 10-year-old? Right? Because a 10-year-old hasn't yet had an opportunity to form their view of the world and the, their power in it. So there's history and future. And so my rejection of many of the themes uh, within 1619 all seem to be focused on this idea that you are forever a victim. And it's almost hopeless. I mean, I can't imagine anything less empowering to a very young child. And so, you know, there's now something called the 1776 Project, which I hope to participate in, which will be, you know, a, a, a collection of writers who aren't running away from the history of the United States, right? They're not saying, no, 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 it didn't happen. They're saying it did happen. And by the way, here's what happened. Here's what's happened since. Here's the growth of all sorts of different communities that went from persecution to prosperity. And here's how. Here are some of the tools, the, 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 the focus on faith, the importance of family structure, the importance of education, the adoption of social norms that really empowered whole communities to tell an empowering story for kids because those are the kinds of decisions that they're going to face in their lives that better allow them to control their destiny. They can't necessarily control, you know, again, whether they're going to face housing discrimination, but they do control their ability to control their own destiny more than any other force. And so as someone who runs schools, to me, it's antithetical, this idea that somehow America was born in slaveocracy, and that's the only thing that matters in the entire history of our country. It completely ignores the massive growth of the black community on, against all odds, and yet enormous growth actually up until the 60s, and then we started to see all sorts of um, declines, you know, the massive growth in non-marital birth rates, decline in marriage. These things matter, and they're just ignored. Um, and so, again, as someone, as you know, I'll tell you one quick story. You know, when we, um, 
we decided a few years ago that all of the growth of our new schools would be in the South Bronx. And we moved our headquarters from nice Tribeca, you know, in Manhattan, where you can get your latte and, you know, just be very she-she. So you've been there. There you go. Yeah, I've been there. Um, so we moved our headquarters from Tribeca to 148th Street and 3rd Avenue in the heart of the South Bronx. Literally, there was a needle exchange on the corner. We sometimes had folks shooting up. Several of our staff members felt unsafe. And yet, this is where we were going to place our schools. This is a community. So we need to have the courage to put our headquarters right in the same place that our kids are going to school because we're a public school network. Okay. And so one day, we decided to take a, a walking tour of the neighborhood to get to know, you know, where's the local bodega? Where's the local bank? Where do you get your lunch? And on this on this walking tour, we saw a 27-foot baby blue Winnebago truck with all these adults around, like, really excited. Oh, my God, this truck is here. It, it seemed like almost like an ice cream truck when it shows up, you know? Uh-oh. And then it turned, I saw graffiti lettering on the side. As I walk around, the graffiti lettering says, who's your daddy? Like, what is that? So as I look at it, it turns out that the Who's Your Daddy truck is a mobile DNA testing center where low-income people are spending between $350 and $500 to pay for DNA tests to answer questions such as, are you my father? You know, could you be my sister? Like, basic questions about family and identity, real identity. Wow. Um, And, you know, and I learned in this community, the non-marital birth rates typically between 85 and 90 percent, you know, where children are born and raised in communities where they're very little experience seeing fathers in the home. Excuse me for interrupting. How does that relate to the educational challenge that you face at public? No, I mean, look, you cannot be someone that runs schools in rural America or urban America without being honest, and seeing every single day what the impact is of kids that are coming from very dysfunctional home environments. And oftentimes that is a function, not always, but we have lots of amazing single parents in our sure. community, but we have, you know, many situations where we have underprepared, typically single, single parents who, you know, and dads who are not uh, around or not around and or around, but not necessarily in a positive way. And it manifests itself in behavioral issues. It manifests itself in getting homework done. You know, it manifests itself in doing the nightly reading and putting in the reading log in a whole host of ways. Um, and so when I saw that this, you know, business was so great for the, the guy who owns the Who's Your Daddy truck, he got a second truck, right? Just because the demand was so high, not only in the Bronx, but other parts of New York City. VH1 actually has a reality show called Swab Stories because on the truck they take a DNA sample by doing a cotton swab, right? And so it's a story about all these people who are real life. Hey, find out if Jerome or whatever, is this your dad or not, right? So it's entertainment. So when I saw that, I said our schools have to take on a, a greater challenge. It's, it's about academics, but it's also about helping our kids understand the series of life decisions that can help them avoid these issues in the first place. And so, 
you know, this, this, you know, so when you talk about things like 1619 and, 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 you know, like I'm not sure if I would prioritize having our kids learn that America was born in slaveocracy much more than something called, for example, the success sequence, which data shows when uh, adults have done four things, finish their education, work, marriage, then children, that series of life decisions done in that order, 97% of the time, our kids avoid poverty. How about that for an empowering message? How about that? You know, so when I balance things like, am I going to put 16, 19 in my curriculum versus putting the data associated with the, the success sequence? You know, I would tend to want to have the empowering message. And, and, and I think part of the 1776 project is we, we got to push back against these messages of victimhood and fatalist views of America, especially for low-income kids who, you know, after a while you start hearing that stuff, you think, why even bother? Let me just mention for the audience's benefit that the 1776 Project is a still uh, just emerging initiative that uh, Ian and I are both associated with that's been organized by Robert Woodson of the Woodson Center in uh, Washington, D.C., and that engages uh, intellectuals, activists, uh, street workers, educators, uh, journalists, and others from around the country who are concerned precisely as you have expressed about how the propaganda of the 1619 Project, telling the story of America through the lens of slavery and oppression and hopelessness, uh, needs to be uh, tempered and countered uh, with other narratives. And you've been giving voice to some of that right here. And there's going to be a, a, a press conference on the 14th of February in Washington announcing the advent of the 1776 project. Uh, and uh, you and I are both going to be there and people Absolutely. should stay tuned because they'll be hearing more from, from us about the. I got to ask you one more question, Ian. It's about the achievement gap. Yes. About test score differences by race. I assume most of your students there in the South Bronx are students of color. They're black and they're brown. Most of them, maybe not all of them. I don't know. You can correct that if that's wrong. Uh, and you're trying to get them to college. Um, and uh, when you look at the data, you know, SAT scores, ACT scores and all of that, you see huge disparity by uh, race on the average in test score performance. And that's one of the reasons why African-Americans uh, are underrepresented in some of the more elite educational venues. Um, what would you as an experienced educator have to say about the sources of that disparity about uh, the ability of uh, educational institutions like your own to overcome it uh, and so on? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so a couple of things. So the achievement gap, which is, you know, if you look at the mission statements of many organizations, educational organizations, our mission is to close the achievement gap between right. black and white students. Right. Do you know that in the entire history of NAEP, which is the nation's report card since 1992. That's the National Assessment of Educational Progress, a battery yes. of tests that the Education Department conducts nationwide to assess yes. how well American kids are learning. Excellent. At 4th, 8th, and 12th grade. Right. In the entire history of NAEP, it has never been the case that at 4th or 8th grade or even at 12th grade that more than 50% of white students read at proficiency. 
<laughs> white kids can't read. Okay. The majority of white kids don't read at proficiency in this country. And yet we are obsessed with the black white achievement gap because you know what? Let's say we close the gap at best. We're mediocre in West Virginia, <laughs> West Virginia um, for eighth grade. Uh, this was um, uh, Nate data. I think this was 2013. The percent of uh, uh, black students that passed the eighth grade, I think, reading exam, well, uh, boys, what would you guess it is? The percent of, of that passed the reading exam. Eighth graders, black. Yes. Uh, 20, 20%. 17%. Oh. Terrible, right? Yeah, what I would thought you it was guess? bad. I didn't know it was that bad. What would you guess the percent of white eighth grade boys that take that same exam, what percent were proficient there? What would be your guess? Well, you just told me that it can't be more than 50, so I'm going to say 45. 18. Oh, come on. It's the same? It's essentially 18. the same? No, 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 it's not the same. No, there's there's a gap. There's a 17. black white achievement gap of 1%. <laughs> so let's say we close that gap. Rah. So now yeah. we're all mediocre. Right. Okay. So first, let's rid ourselves of this idea that the achievement levels of white students is the standard because it's a standard of mediocrity. And so you start to realize that race is not actually the single biggest defining factor of what defines the achievement gap. I'm working closely now with the folks at NAEP and the U.S. Department of Education to hopefully start measuring outcomes by family structure. Because when you look at data structured by who's in a married two-parent household versus being raised by grandma or a single-parent home, you see dramatic differences that transcend race. And so maybe the interventions that we've all been so focused on because of the racial achievement gap, maybe they're the wrong interventions. So, for example, in New York, because of the racial achievement gap, it must be that if the kids are okay, it must be that it must be the racist teachers, right? Either they're explicitly racist or implicitly racist. So now the the chancellor here has embarked upon a 30 or $40 million effort that we got to train all the teachers to get rid of all the implicit bias. But maybe that's not actually the factor that's driving whether I see. see. That's very interesting. so I, so my view on this is that the focus on the achievement gap is typically through the prism of race, which in my view sets us up for a false um, dichotomy where even closing the gap would be a race towards mediocrity. That's, and that, uh, you know, I've not heard that expressed that way before, and it, it's very stimulating to me. But I have to ask you this, since I have you, and you've, you've confessed to being an alumni of Brooklyn Tech, and uh, I've been reading the newspaper just like the next person. And uh, there's another fierce battle going on in New York City education about these exam schools, you know, Stuyvesant yep. and yep. Bronx High School of Science and stuff yep. like that. How'd you get in? You're black, man. You're not supposed to be get, able to get into any of these places. And uh, what do you think? What do you think about the conflict of should they have the uh, standardized test uh, be the sole criteria for admission to the select high schools? Evidently, you were able to score high enough to get admitted yourself decades ago. Um, I mean, there are hundreds of high schools in New York City. And for the focus to be, let's reduce the standard on the very top few that are working without focusing on, well, what's going on with all the other high schools in the city? So how did I get into Brooklyn Tech? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because my parents 
from a very early age said you were going to study, not even so much for this high school exam way into the future, but you're going to do well in school. You're going to focus. You're going to do well. You know, these are things that many parents aren't doing as much as they could or, or what they know to do. So I got in, I took the test and I was fortunate enough to get into Brooklyn tech. The, 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 Argument right now seems to be that, for example, I think it's Stuyvesant, only seven black students got in. Yeah. And so, again, it's similar to the black achievement gap. If the, black, if, if the kids aren't succeeding, it must be because either the teachers are racist or, in this case, the instrument must be racist, yeah. right? And so what's right. the answer? Let's get rid of the instrument. It is yeah. the most It's the most insidious form of racism because what it's saying is, you know, these kids can't pass the test. They can't pass. So let's just remove it. Let's just have some artificial mechanisms by we, we make the adults feel better because we'll have the right compositions, you know, racial compositions at the end yeah. of the day. It is, it is, it's insidious. It's, it's, it's horrific in my view because wait a minute, what is it that's happening in the education of the kids from pre-K through eighth grade before they end up taking the test in the first place. Perhaps that's the area yeah. where we should be focused on improving the outcomes. And this is and another so, area where the uh, New York city hall and uh, Albany are at loggerheads with each other, isn't it? They are at loggerheads. Um, although, you know, ultimately the mayor actually does have the power to change some of the rules, at least some of the specialized high schools, he could do it unilaterally. What's interesting is that the Asian community has stepped up and said, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You're now penalizing us because in our community, our kids are so focused on education from kindergarten that they're so well prepared that they're disproportionately doing well. And so now they have to be penalized. How about just creating more great high schools as opposed to um, limiting the opportunities for the kids that are getting in? It, 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 again, it's, it's, it's the most... The, the the verbiage is about social justice and creating opportunity, but in fact, it's most insidious race, racist element in the sense of, no, 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 let's just remove the objective standard altogether. And that's when we get into, we're sending these implicit and explicit messages to our kids that in order for you to succeed, we've got to reduce the standard. And that's exactly the opposite of what we're telling our kids. Our kids, you can achieve, you can achieve. We believe in you. Here are the tools that you can be successful. That's why I run schools. That's why we have to be partnered with our communities. We have to fight against messages that are all about victimhood and this fatalist notion of living in this country and instead talking about empowerment and the fact that you have personal agency, that your ability to make decisions will have the greatest positive impact on your life. And that, you know, that's, that's why I run schools and that's why I'm very excited to, to be part of 1776 and the future of our kids. And that's why I ask you to come on the Glenn show. There are other views out there. We will be giving voice to them in the fullness of time here at the Glenn show. But uh, I'm very happy to hear from you, Ian, and uh, congratulations on the successful uh, educational leadership that you are exemplifying uh, there in the South Bronx. I, I, I respect, I have great admiration for what you're doing. Well, same here. I, I, you, you're, you are an inspiration to me. So thank you very oh, much. Thank you. Okay, so this is Ian Rowe, Chief Executive Officer of uh, Public Prep uh, Charter School Network in New York City. 
and uh, we're signing off here at the Glen Show. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. Thank you. All righty.